thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a privilege to share the Word of God with the saints of Durban Memorial Baptist Church and to lift our praises to God together. I had something dreadful happen a few weeks ago. I went downstairs at home to get some beef out of the freezer, and when I opened it up, something was very wrong. The freezer was supposed to be filled all the way to the brim with recently cut beef, but it was only half full. At first, I thought a band of rogues had come by and pillaged out my freezer. But then I realized nothing was missing. It had sunk. My entire freezer had thawed out. Everything in it ruined. Looking back at it, there were signs all along. But I hadn't had to open it up in a while. I hadn't been in there. I should have noticed when I was in the basement that I didn't hear the humming of the freezer unit when I was in there, the compressor going. I I should have noticed that there was actually a little bit of moisture dripping from the little cap that you can drain the freezer from, indicating that it had defrosted at some point. If I'd just been in there to get the meat more often, I may have even caught it before, maybe after the freezer went out, but before everything in it went bad. But alas, none of that happened. I missed the boat and I had a freezer full of stinky meat. So then I had to figure out what happened. Do I throw out the whole thing? Is the whole freezer gone bad? Is it salvageable? And so I started doing some testing with a few different things, and it turned out that actually the wall outlet of the, where the freezer was plugged into went bad. It was no longer delivering power to the freezer. Now, you didn't come here this morning to hear about my freezer problems, but I bring all this up to make a specific point, hopefully here to illustrate something. What, what really happened with my freezer? Did the freezer go bad? Well, no. Was it the meat's fault? No. Was there a problem with the electricity in my house? No. It all boiled down to a blown socket. The thing that was responsible for distributing the power to the freezer went bad and so went everything in it. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy. As we talk about pastors today, I'm not saying that a a bad or an unqualified pastor can take away your salvation. That's not the point I want you to take. But what I am trying to illustrate is the point that when a pastor goes bad or when a pastor is unqualified from the get-go for the position, there is a massive effect on the church. If it's not diagnosed and corrected soon enough, then the organization as a whole is doomed to fail. Even if the church as an organization grows in numbers of people, it is building on a false premise that runs contrary to the God it says it serves. As we've been highlighting throughout this series, the church is important. One ministry website put it like this. It said, the reality is that the organization of the church is the means that King Jesus uses to disciple his people and to bring the gospel to a lost and needy world. When Christ ascended into heaven, he didn't leave his children as orphans. Rather, he established and structured a structure by which the Holy Spirit would work through men to build up the church. 
This involves the calling, equipping, and ordaining of pastors, elders, and deacons. And uh, in the church, the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned his church to bring the gospel of grace to the world. And the path of every Christian culminates in the corporate worship of God for all of eternity in Revelation 21. Thus, we need the gifts that Jesus has given to the church, including pastors and teachers to fulfill this mission. So if we are to take this, this church seriously and submissively to the word of God, we also have to consider God's given qualifications for those who are to be in leadership. The mission of the church is too dependent upon God to go against God's design for the church. If you haven't already, you can open to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Today we are going to answer the question, should we fire the pastor? If you are uh, upset about the date in the bulletin, your answer may be yes. (laughs) Our intention this morning is to look through the qualifications of this pastor, overseer, elder, and to ensure everything we do in this church is reflective of what God has given to us in his word. This was a matter of vital importance to Timothy and the church at Ephesus. And our look at chapter one, right? We saw that there was false teaching that had begun to sneak into the church and it was sneaking in through the leadership of the church. The church is on the verge of spoiling if the correction is not made. So Paul gives Timothy this guide for selecting leaders to be in line with God's design for God's church. Now, Before we get into the specifics here, I want to explain another important foundation for this message. It's important to remember these instructions that we're going to read through are particularly uh, instructions for uh, the qualifications of a pastor or an elder, but they are not contradictory to layman living. (laughs) That means that all of us can aspire towards these things. They can be a model for everyone to strive well if we truly want to live our lives for the glory of God. You'll hear me say time and time again that our position before God, our, our, our salvation, if you would, is not determined by our good works. We can't earn our righteousness. However, we should seek to honor God in all that we do. Our liberty in Christ is not an excuse for sinful living. It's actually quite the opposite. We don't have to live shackled to sin. We've been set free and thus enabled to honor God through what we do. So these pastors and elders might have some seemingly strict guidelines for their qualifications, but they are ideals that every Christian should pursue. Right. I mentioned this when we went through first uh, when we went through Titus. I think it was the first Sunday I was here as pastor. Paul said in first Corinthians 11, one, he said, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It is an honor, a privilege and a duty for Christians to emulate Christ like behavior. So let's begin looking at the qualifications of an elder, but not just thinking, oh, this is not for me. We can all benefit from this. Look first in verse one of chapter three of first Timothy. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. We'll stop there for a moment. Something really disappointing has happened. There was a recent Gallup poll, and the results of the poll said that only 32% of Americans believe that clergy have a high level of honesty and ethics. This ranked behind 
nurses, veterinarians, engineers, dentists, doctors, pharmacists, police officers, and even chiropractors. And it was just barely above bankers, journalists, lawyers, and members of Congress. Now, looking at that list of jobs there, I would say that they are all noble, at least necessary tasks. They are what we would consider good jobs. They're important for the proper functioning of society. The problem with the perception, at least, of pastors, bankers, journalists, lawyers, and members of Congress is that far too many and far too often those who are in the role are not worthy of it. Too often these positions have been abused for personal gain. When it comes to being a a pastor, an elder, overseer, despite the declining trust from Americans at large, it is indeed a noble task. There have been those who abuse this position, absolutely, but a pastor functioning in line with God's word is worthy of double honor. Recently in the Kentucky Baptist Convention, there's been an initiative entitled Calling Out the Called. The idea is to uh, identify, encourage, and equip folks to join uh, ministry in in vocational or co-vocational, bivocational ways. And so, They've created an emphasis uh, in specific Sundays where they talk about this or even uh, uh, scholarship programs to give to men who may be interested in becoming pastors. This is a good program. I'm I'm glad to be a part of it through our cooperative program participation. But if I'm speaking just a little bit freely this morning, it's sad that that program is necessary. What do I mean? Well, I'm, I'm glad to help afford education for people to be equipped for ministry. But one of the primary reasons why the Kentucky Baptist Convention has created the Calling Out the Called initiative is because as a whole, Baptist churches in Kentucky can't find anyone who even wants to fill the pulpit. We can't find pastors. We can't find ministers. It's clear to me, at least, that The next generation doesn't see aspiring to the office of overseer as a noble task, a noble endeavor. Let me say it's not the most lucrative path. It's not the easiest of tasks, but it certainly is a noble task. A God-honoring pastor has committed their life to serving the Lord and to leading his people as an under-shepherd We've already talked about this morning in the introduction. God chose to work through the local church to share the gospel with the nations and thus save sinners. God chose to establish overseers to lead the church in the accomplishment of that mission. It can't get much nobler than that. It is a lofty calling. A pastorate is something that should be aspired towards We should be encouraging men to pursue such a position. However, as we see in the decline of trust for clergy members, just because someone aspires towards a position does not mean that they should fill it. God did not call everyone in this room here this morning to be an overseer. 
Now, as Baptists, we believe in what we talked about this morning, congregationalist polity, congregationalist form. That means we believe each congregation, that is each church, operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. And such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. This means we vote on who we recognize as pastor within our church. So if that's how we're set up, and that's what we do. And this is an important and noble task that someone should desire to, uh, to, to fill. As a church, you need to know what to look for. So we're going to look at eight qualifications this morning given to the church in evaluating who should be considered to be an overseer in the church. And all this comes in uh, verses 2 through 7. We'll read that together now. It says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his house, own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. A snare of the devil. So this list of characteristics we are walking through this morning presupposes what we looked at last week. Eldership in the church is reserved for uh, males as a reflection of God's created order and design for creation. So feel free to refer back to last week's sermon for a deeper understanding of how we got to that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So then now we are seeing this extensive list of criteria for a man to be considered an overseer. We'll be considering or condensing this, if you would, into eight categories of qualification. The first category is reputation. Paul says that an overseer must be above reproach. This is referring to the man's reputation, his observable conduct. This is also kind of a a blanket qualification for everything that follows. If a man meets the other qualifications, he will certainly be above reproach. But why does reputation matter? Well, if you look back at verse 7, there at the end, you will see uh, that a pastor's conduct is to be so well thought of by outsiders that he won't fall into disgrace, that being a snare of the devil. As seen uh, this morning, there is a growing distrust between clergy, which is just another fancy word for someone in a pastoral type role, depending on denomination. But in general, you ask a random person on the street, if we're talking about clergy, they're equating that to pastors. So there's a growing distrust in America between the regular people and between pastors. And that shows us the devil's snare has been working. Pastors fall into disgrace. This isn't just a, uh, an issue of perception. This is an issue, uh, issue of reality. Pastors fall into disgrace and bring shame upon themselves and upon the cause of Christ. We have a massive problem if we are speaking candidly this morning with unqualified or disqualified people besmirching the name of Christ in their position at their churches. While we should be seeking correction and taking no joy in the abuse of ministerial positions around us, I want to encourage us this morning with the reminder, the gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church. 
He will continue to save his people and work through faithful congregations. There is a massive problem of people not living up to the qualification, not being above reproach. But we can take hope in knowing Christ is still the victor. This well, well thought of verse in, or in verse 7 literally means have a beautiful witness to the outside world. We as a church should desire the leadership of the church to be a godly impression on the outside world. We want the leadership of the church to make a good impression so that we can point the outside world to the source of holiness, Jesus Christ. When considering the leadership in the church, we have to consider the reputation that follows. The next qualification comes to us, and we can go back to the slide before, brother, for a little while here. The next qualification is marriage. Paul writes in verse 2 that the overseer is to be a husband of one wife. This is widely debated on all sides, really, even in conservative scholarship. But most all conservative scholars agree that when Paul says a husband of one wife, he is teaching that an overseer must be faithful to his wife. The text literally says a pastor must be a uh, man of one woman, a one-woman man. The elder must be faithful to his wife in a monogamous relationship. To be a one-woman man prohibits promiscuity and homosexuality. An elder must have a clear and consistent pattern of honor, love, and devotion to his wife alone. That's what all conservative scholarship agrees on, really, uh, for that phrase there. And there are debates as to if this precludes a man from uh, eldership if he has never been married or if the man has been divorced. Now, the text certainly does not preclude a man who has never been married from serving as pastor, but it does serve as a reminder and as a guide for how if an unmarried man is called to a pastor, he should pursue a relationship with intentionality and reverence to God. But just as not everyone is able to have kids and we see uh, uh, qualifications related to children later, we can see uh, verse uh, two there, this husband of one wife is not precluding someone who is not married there. When it comes to divorce, I respect that there are opinions on all sides, even from conservative scholars here. But I will say from my prayer, my studies, my consultation with other pastors, uh, that I would not consider a divorce that occurred prior to salvation as a disqualifying incident, uh, uh, as we are new creatures made in Christ. There are some who suggest that a man can be restored to ministry after a divorce, uh, if it was even after they have uh, uh, come to Christ, if the circumstances were within biblical grounds for divorce and proper steps for reconciliation and repentance had been made. Now, I understand this position. However, for myself, at least, reviewing, praying, consulting over Scripture, uh, I made a vow at my ordination. That if Cassidy and I were to separate for any reason, my fault, her fault, or drifting apart, whatever the case may be, that I would no longer serve as a pastor and I hold to that standard. So marriage is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. If we agree that God has a high view of marriage, then so should his church and so should his under shepherds serving as pastor. The third qualification is disciplined 
Again, in verse 2, we read sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. And these virtues all work together. A pastor is to be sober-minded. That is clear in decision-making. This can have application outside of alcohol. But when you consider it with verse 3, we see that elders are also not to be drunkards. Pastors are to be disciplined in what they put in their bodies. Remaining clear-headed, avoiding drunkenness. Now, drunkenness was an ancient blight, but it ain't gotten much better today. We are not to be driven by our appetites. This applies to that word self-controlled there as well in verse 2. This means that an overseer is not to be controlled by passions or lusts or idolatry, but rather be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Respectable persons give no easy reason to tear down their calls. They are disciplined in their approach to glorifying God with dignity. The fourth category is ministry. If you close out verse 2, we read hospitable and able to teach. Of these two pastoral uh, qualifications, I think the most overlooked is hospitable. All Christians are called to show hospitality. In Romans 12, it says that we are to seek the needs of the saints and to show hospitality. We're not to be insulated or isolated. Even within our congregation, we're not supposed to simply wait for opportunities to drop into our lives to be there for others. We're to be proactively pursuing opportunities to be there for one another. And that's not just talking about pastors. That's talking about all of us. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to always have a revolving door in our homes, but we should be consistently and continually seeking fellowship with one another to deepen our affections and love for the Lord, as well as seeking hospitality relationships with unbelievers where we can show them their need of the Lord. A pastor should be modeling this for the church. I'm convinced by the word that the overseer should have a personal relationship with his congregation. We're not to be removed into some ivory tower of study or able to be approached by a congregation. Then with hospitality, the overseer is also supposed to be able to teach. He should be a student of the word, a communicator of the word and a defender of the word. Teaching, though, is more than telling folks what it is or just giving out of information. It requires connecting with others in ways that they understand. A teacher isn't teaching if no one is actually being taught, right? So he may be able to give instructions in sound doctrine, it says in 1 Timothy 1.9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as it's taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then in 2 Timothy 2.25, it says uh, a pastor is to be correcting his opponents with gentleness. A great teacher doesn't have to tear down but builds on the foundation of truth given to us in God's word and seeks to connect that into the lives of others. A fifth qualification of a pastoral ministry or a pastoral candidate and overseer is temperament. In verse three, we read not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. 
A literal translation of not violent would be not a giver of blows. Not a giver of blows. Too many pastors on Twitter want to be a giver of blows. Our scripture proclamation this month reminds us that Jesus Christ was gentle and lowly himself. Now, this doesn't mean that he was never fiery. This doesn't mean that he was never stern. But certainly the Lord of creation showed patience and mercy with his wicked creation. If we understand that Christ was gentle despite man's egregious sins against him. Think about that. As Jesus was walking through Jerusalem, seeing the sins around him, that wasn't just stuff he was observing. There was sin against him. Against him. He was gentle. If we understand that, we can expect gentleness from the leaders of the church as well. Further, this isn't just a qualification. This is a fruit of the Spirit. From my limited perspective, this is an area not much considered when evaluating or considering who to call as a pastor. We gravitate towards fireworks because fireworks get our attention. But the shepherd does not just yell at his sheep. He tends to them. If a man's ministry is marked more by his fights than his care, he is doing it wrong. The sixth category of qualification is finance. At the end of verse 3, we read, Not a lover of money. Now, this is specifically talking about an elder, overseer, pastor's attitude towards money. There are certainly financial implications in the church And it's good for a pastor to be given a wage for his work. We'll read that later on here in 1 Timothy. So this doesn't mean that an overseer is anti-money or some sort of monk that rejects all material items. We must remember that the old adage we've all heard is an old wrong adage. Money is not the root of all evil. It is the love of money that is the roots of all kinds of evil. An overseer in the church cannot lead the church to make every decision with the intention of hoarding money. That's the crux here. The church is not a bank. It is a ministry. We want to be good stewards with what God has given us. We want to understand that this is a gift that God has given us. We don't want to squander everything away just uh, not thinking about things intently. But we are also not a for-profit business. Too often the church employs a business strategy for kingdom work. We must reject the idea of monitoring our success by coffers and attendance. This can be a blind spot in the church because we want to be financially secure. And we should be good stewards. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying to just waste everything away. One pastor once said, if a man is drunk on wine, you'll throw him out of the church. But if he's drunk on money, you'll make him a deacon. If we understand The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and that the overseer sets the tone for the church. We must expect ourselves and our overseers to be free from the love of money. Good stewards, absolutely. Seeking to continue the ministry uh, in a a long-standing way, absolutely, but not driven solely for the hoarding of money. The seventh category given to us is family This is verses four and five. 
We read, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? Now, this doesn't mean that everything is always perfect or that all of the children are necessarily even believing Christians. Rather, a faithful pastor will be one who leads his home and disciplines his children diligently and that attention to discipline will be reflected in some degree in his children's behavior. We see with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, unruly children often reveal a lack of loving discipline and managerial order in the home. When we understand that discipline, even in the context of the church at large, is ultimately restorative and done for the benefit of the recipient, we should also understand that pastors should be modeling this behavior in their own homes. Now, this doesn't mean all pastors rule their home with an iron fist. This doesn't negate the gentleness that we just looked at a moment ago. But fathers in general and pastors particularly are here and called to discipline their children. As we've mentioned so far throughout the sermon, the distrust that there is between clergy throughout the world and people in America, I'm reminded of a cliche that I heard when I was a kid. We were told that pastor's kids were wild, right? You ever heard that? You ever heard that about a pastor's kid? You all, oh, that crazy kid, he, over, he must be a pastor's kid. Now we can look at that and laugh a little bit, but bear with me here. This is me postulating. I haven't dived into the. I'm just sharing a thought that could be dangerous. Could it be? That as that cliche was becoming reality, that we had been overlooking a symptom of unqualified leadership. This verse doesn't mean that pastor's children have to be perfect. Or even that they will certainly be believers. But manners and respect can be taught. If the church is supposed to be a family then a pastor better first be able to manage his own family before expanding into the church. The final category given is maturity. Look at verse six. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceits and fall into condemnation of the devil. Now we're not given a definition of recent here. I'm not sure there is supposed to be an exact definition Instead, we're supposed to give these guys an opportunity to prove themselves before thrusting them into a leadership position. We know from the parable of the sower, as I mentioned earlier, that there's oftentimes where seeds seem to sprout up and then fall away. The church has sometimes been way too quick to put someone into a place of influence to seem culturally relevant. I spoke about this a few months ago. I don't remember exactly when, but I'm reminded of when Kanye West claimed Christianity. Now, only the Spirit can know uh, Mr. West's heart, but the fruit that we've seen since then does not give me any uh, credibility uh, in his conversion. Yet, at the time, we were ready to put him on the circuit and make him the face of Christianity. Paul cautions against putting new converts into a lofty position because it puffs them up with deceit or conceit, excuse me. An overseer should be marked by humility. Humility and experience together are a recipe for a successful God honoring ministry. Now, 
In verses 6 and 7 both, we are given extra reasoning as to why this is important. Why we should care about the qualifications of a pastor, elder, overseer. Not only is the church God's chosen vessel through which he shares the gospel to an unbelieving world. Not only are pastors, overseers, and elders entrusted to be the leaders of the church and leading in this charge. But the devil is actively working against its mission. Now, we understand the sovereignty of God. We've read the end of the book, but we also understand we are fighting in a war. Our victory may be assured in Christ, but the victories we accomplish here and now give God all the more glory. May we not fall into temptation and treat Christ's church as something less than what it is. May we not allow leadership to be less than what it should be. May we joyfully and reverentially seek to install leaders that are in line with God's guidance. So I'm going to leave us here with two quick thoughts. Number one, I said at the beginning we were going to be answering this question, should we fire the pastor? My answer is I don't know. (laughs) I've given you scriptural foundation for an overseer of the church. We're congregationalists and we got a business meeting tonight. I'll let y'all work that out. Number two. The virtues that we've discussed today are beneficial for us all. But we also are reminded not all of us are called to be pastors. And you know what? That's okay. As noble of a task as being a pastor is, that's okay that you aren't one. God didn't design us all to be one. I was at a conference this week where the speaker was making a a separate point, but he he mentioned that he grew up in the first generation to really embrace one of the worst lies ever told. That is, his generation grew up believing they can be whatever they want to be when they grow up. That's simply not true. He said, I'm six foot two, and when I bend, I break. I will never be a gymnast. That was not what God designed him to be. Now, we want to join in calling out the called, but God didn't call every single person to be a pastor, and that's okay. You might not meet all those qualifications that we've walked through today, but you have still been uniquely equipped to serve God exactly where you are. There is one more thing that none of us Myself included, anyone aspiring for elder in this room have been called for. That is Savior. None of us can be the Savior. That is a role rightly reserved for Jesus Christ. A role that only he can hold. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he has saved and sealed all those who believe in him. He has a purpose for you that is for your good and for his glory. Statistically, that purpose is probably not pastor. But I can tell you this, that it is his will for you to serve him through the local church, to give his his praise, to serve others, to show hospitality, and to care and be cared for by a bunch of other sinners saved by the grace of God. We are not all called to be pastors, but the call to come has come out. 
We're called to repent of our sins and believe in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. Have you done so? If so, do not, if not, do not delay. Come forward today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. I thank you for allowing us to serve you in the local church. Lord, I just pray that you are glorified in all that is done. Lord, I pray that you are calling out the call that we would see pastors raise up, that we would see that it is a lofty calling, Lord, a high calling, but a good calling, something to be desired. And Lord, that we would understand if maybe we are not qualified to be pastors, that doesn't mean we aren't qualified to serve you in the ways that you have called us to, that we are all called to be ambassadors of Christ, imploring others be reconciled to God. Lord, I pray that you have shown each and every single one of us the seriousness of our sin and that Christ is the sufficient Savior and that he is Lord. And thus we live submissively to him in all things. That we would seek to model our church after what he has designed for us. That we would seek to model our lives after what he has modeled for us. That we would seek to serve you well for you are worthy to be served. I thank you for being a God who is still calling sinners home. May you be calling today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.